upon you, namaste, and all that jazz. Welcome to Safe Abu Candles, the show with no name. I have the privilege of my co-anchor, Julia Felix, for two seconds before she has to run out for some errands, are unfortunately not able to be with us. Jules, any message you'd like to have for our listeners regarding either Free Space or our upcoming guest? Um, what? It's okay, I you, can edit the um and uhs and all that, just, you know, don't worry. Can you, can you also edit out the, what the fuck, Dave? I wasn't ready for this. No, I'm leaving that in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving the what the fuck, definitely, but no. Any message? Okay, well, what's free space exactly, Jules, in case our listeners have Alzheimer's and forgot last episode and the episode before that. 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 Because, you know cabin fever, COVID. <laughs> Free Space is a grassroots organization that offers supportive services to artists and creatives around the world. So we help with project management, with admin, with any, with any kind of support you might need in navigating what needs to be done to make the project successful. Nice. And now, hello. Hello. <laughs> Martin Moron? Hello. What's with the moron? I must have done it because I thought it was a joke at some point. I, I'm just suddenly reminded by that um, interesting grammatical fact of an oxymoron is an oxymoron within itself because a moron is someone that was deprived of oxygen at childbirth. Ah, uh, that's a good one. I hadn't heard that before. I'm just really impressed that you're managing to keep so busy while others are just... Uh. Mate, ridiculous. So um, I literally, um, I don't understand how I used to go to do gigs. I, I just, my, my days are just completely full all the time. They're given that it is, um, it is dark here at about 4.30. So I have to really, every day I have to write a to-do list and schedule what can get done. Like today, I had, a, I had something this morning. How are you, mate? Are you all right? I'm well, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard that, you know how they always say idle hands are the devil's workshop? Yeah, yeah. But a lot of people don't realize that it's actually the first half of a saying, which is idle hands are the devil's workshop, idle minds are the devil's playground. Ah, okay. Got ya. Because obviously our hands are what do all the the hard work for the devil but our minds if we let our minds go idle then the devil can have you know have a blast in our brain yes i hear that um, do you know do you know ollie horn did you ever encounter ollie i know we've i know we've exchanged comments on on facebook but i you know the thing is about our industry you have no idea who you know in person from the fringe festivals yeah, well, like, Ollie, Ollie, really nice young man. He's really mm. good. He's a pretty decent act, actually. Mm. And he, um, and Ollie did a thing of, uh, he moved to Japan. He studied in Japan. He's English. Studied in Japan and really, really early on, before he was like anywhere with comedy, before he was like an even open spot standard, he wow. was getting corporate gigs because there's hardly any um, English people there. And he got on Japanese TV. He was working on a Japanese TV show. And oh, as wow. a result, he really learned 
all that stuff. And when you see him podcasting, it's it's great. His his stuff, he's got our, his zooms. He's got it set up so perfectly. Hello, welcome to Safe Abu Candles, the podcast with no name. I am joined with my lovely, phenomenal guest, Martin Moore. Quick background on Martin. He first started off as a circus performer, leading to a 30-year career for which he is now highly sought after all over the world. He has performed at venues other comedians haven't even dreamt of, including an Italian prison in addition to comedy clubs. In April of 2016, he was part of a team that broke the world record for highest altitude gig at a height of 55,300 meters, 17,600 feet at Mount Everest Base Camp. And he's been the support act of choice for, to name a few, Frankie Boyle, Lee Evans, Steve Coogan, and once even Tina Turner. I have to ask, I mean, I usually ask, did I miss anything, but you, you, you were, you, you gigged with Tina Turner? Well, I, I gigged on the same gig as Tina Turner, but what it was in here in the UK, oh, hello, by the way, hello. Uh, here in <laughs> Welcome, the UK, Martin. There's a, um, there's a massive theme park, uh, like a Disneyland type thing, and, it, and it's called Alton Towers, sort of in the English, kind of near Nottingham, that, that kind of, the, uh, part of the country and at Alton Towers they have big rock events big music events and I was the opening act uh, doing a circus act I was the opening act uh, for Tina Turner but the truth of it is there was like 15,000 maybe more people there 15,000 or more people there so I did my gig at like 6.30 she was on at like 8.30 so I did my gig and then I just split straight away uh, to, to beat the crowds because I didn't want to get stuck in the place with all these people as they were leaving the gig. So I never saw the gig and the truth of it, I never saw her. Uh, I was oh. in a backstage area. She was in a different backstage area. Then, uh, then about a month later, I did the same exact same gig again for a band that were called M People. And M people uh, I know. I remember M people. Yeah, it, yeah, and it was exactly the same. That got there at like eight a.m. in the morning, got all my my stuff set up and ready to go and sound checked, and then you sit around in a little porter cabin at the back, and then you do your gig about 30, 30 minutes, thirty five minutes, and then I just packed up and got away from the thing. So I I didn't see them either. That that's kind of been the story of my life a lot. That. I, when I've gigged at rock festivals, you nearly always have to leave to get to your next gig. So the big band are coming on, you're backstage, but mm. you, you have to go. So you never, you hardly ever get to meet them. So where is the strangest place you've ever done a gig at? Like, I mean, obviously Alton Towers, that's, I mean, for listeners who don't know, Alton Towers was the, I don't know which came first, Thorpe Park or Alton Towers in Britain. Mm. They were the British equivalent of Disneyland uh, theme parks with uh, roller coasters and various amusements to scare children and parents alike. But I mean, for me, Alton Towers would be a surreal, but as you said, it was a concert. So I have always liked the idea of performing at strange gigs. I've, I've, I've very much liked that. 
I've smoked a, I've smoked a bit of the wacky tobacco. Like I've rolled a J outside of Norfolk prison. And like, apparently, I don't know if you've ever been to Norfolk, Martin, while Martin is fixing his camp. Um, and the prison apparently also happens to have like this car park that overlooks all of Norfolk. Okay. And my friend and I, we went there and in all the cars that are facing, it, it felt like a, a weird sort of, is Norfolk a town or a city or a county? So Norfolk's a, a county and it's, um, yeah, Norfolk's a county. Uh, yeah, Norfolk's, a, it's, so Norwich is the, I think Nor Norwich is the big town there. Nor Norfolk is a, is a is county. An entire, is an entire county. Yeah. Uh, to, to answer your question, the, the, so I, I, I like performing in different, I like pushing the edge a little bit. So I've performed in places that didn't have comedy before and like that Everest thing and so on. But the, um, an interesting one is the, the place that surprised me the most yeah. was when I, when I gigged a couple of years ago in Mongolia. Mongolia. Uh, Wow. Mongolia. Well, and I'll tell you why it surprised me. Uh, so where is the strangest place you've ever done a gig? Okay, so I like gigging in strange places. I've gigged in strange places a lot. I like being I like being the first one in places yeah. so that I'm in like an Everest. Like the Everest gig where they've never well, they never had a comedy gig before and so on. <laughs> the, the, absolutely the most surprising place that yeah. I ever gigged was, so I've, I've done gigs in prisons, I've done the gig, I did a gig uh, about three three or four years ago, I did a gig in Edmonton in Canada, and right. it's inside the West Edmonton Mall, and it's on a, um, a, a replica pirate ship. So there's a pirate ship floating on an indoor pool in the shopping mall, it used to be, West Edmonton Mall used to be the biggest mall in the world, like in the 90s or something. Right. And, Afterwards, the promoter of the gig said, um, "said Oh yeah, so uh, how was that for you? I bet that was the first time you've done a gig on a replica pirate pirate ship." And I was going, "That's no, literally like the fourth time I've done a gig on a replica pirate, pirate ship." Yeah, like about the fourth time because like the theme park things. And yeah, so yeah, on. of course. But yeah, in answer to your question, the most surprising place I've ever done a gig was Mongolia, and Mongolia. Two years ago, I did, there's a comedy festival in Southeast Asia, the Magnus Comedy Festival. And they put on- Magnus Cider? Magnus Cider, very, that's the sponsor, the, ver the very people. And uh, I was, I did an experimental tour for them. So I did Singapore. Uh -huh. I then did three different venues in Thailand. I then went to China and did two shows in China. I did two shows in China but just on a 72 hour visa, you can get that stopover visa. So I did the how long hour visa? 72 hours. Is so it three days? Yeah, you're just literally there and gone again. And then uh, and then I was going to Tokyo. I was, I was heading to Tokyo to do uh, a gig there. And so what they did was they used me as a guinea pig to see whether it was viable to include Mongolia into the equation. As it turned out, it wasn't because it's just so expensive to do. But the surprising thing was, so I'm thinking Mongolia, this is gonna be fantastic. I'm in Erlenbatter, uh, the capital city. I thought this is, this is gonna be amazing. I didn't know what to expect. And the thing that was so surprising was the UB Comedy Club in Erlenbatter. It's 
as good as any comedy club you ever saw. It's unbelievable. It's like the perfect comedy club. If you lifted that now and put that in London, that would be the best comedy club in London. If you put that in Manchester, that would be the best yeah, comedy club in London. So wow. It was so perfect. And that's what really surprised me because I had no idea what this would be like. They do comedy seven nights a week. Two of those nights are in English. I was only the second English comedian to be there. Tom Rhodes had been there before. So I was the first, he's an American comedian. I was the first okay. European to go there. And absolutely fantastic. The audience spoke English. They're really comedy literate. The room is perfect. The setup is perfect. They more than perfect. It was so good. They even had a thing. And it made me go, why don't all big comedy clubs have this? The stage had some, there were some pillars between yeah. the audience and the stage. So there were sightline problems. So if the comedian behind the pillar, uh, yeah. you, you, you couldn't see for a moment. So what they had was big flat screen TVs, um, long ways round. So the rectangle would be this. They had them long ways. Oh, they put some 90 degrees. Yeah. So when the comedian walked behind the pillar, you could still see him. The camera was set up. That's that it was genius. Almost exactly the same view, like you, like you knew you were. So if I walked past a pillar on stage, you saw me, you saw me on TV, you saw me again. That's, and you know, it's so funny you're saying this because uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Cairo. I uh, never have. Well, there's so many like, you know how in London you have Kensington, Chelsea, uh, uh, Shepherd's Bush is part of the Kensington borough, or sorry, is part of the Hammersmith borough and so on. And you have all these different boroughs inside London. Hmm. Cairo's boroughs or the equivalent of a borough. We have Zamalek, Maadi, Mohandasin, an area called 6th of October, an area called Fifth Settlement, which is the Gamma Khamis. And there's a Cairo Jazz Club in Mohandasin. And when I first set foot there in 2008, it became sort of like a dream of mine to do a gig there because I started doing stand-up in 2002. And ironically, I did or managed to organize the first ever comedy club, uh, I mean, comedy night, sorry, first ever comedy night there in December of 2015. And um, unfortunately, similar to what you said, what it didn't have were those TVs because it had these massive blind spots, mm. which became an obstruction for any comedian that was a visual comedian rather than an auditory comedian. But they have now expanded. They have another venue. They've opened up another branch. And that one now does regular comedy nights. So like it's when you, inshallah, when this madness comes down and we're all got our microchip. 5G anti-bat vaccinations by Pfizer and Ferrero Rocher uh, implementations, and we're all part cyborg. Hopefully you'll come for a comedy night at Ronan Comedy and get to experience Cairo and Alexandria. I'd really like to look for, for ages, I really tried to get to Egypt. It's one of the places on, on my list to go to just to visit. Mm. And I actually did this thing. Uh, so there's, um. There's a chain of uh, holiday parks yeah. and they're called Sensatori. And the sen Sensatori, they, they have them all over the place. They have some in Turkey, 
they have um they have some in egypt they mm. have um crete and they have cyprus and these they're they're like your typical all and good food everyone stays around the pool they tend to be um at, like out, out near near the beach somewhere and british tourists go there i guess european tourists go there just for the weather they don't really they're not really cultural they're more like weather holidays it's just and it's so, just more to get away from the gray and yeah rain. get away on you know they're nice aren't they they're nice yeah. they're, they're Friendly, people can go with their kids and stuff. Anyway, I um I actually took on some gigs for this company and I, I did Cyprus. Now I've gigged in Cyprus a lot. So I went and did Cyprus and uh, great, gigs are lovely. Uh, I didn't really want to go to Cyprus because I've been to Cyprus a lot. Then I did Crete, fantastic. Crete's good. It's uh, a little difficult for me to do what I wanted to do, like to get into the town and do the cultural stuff because the resort's out of the way. Right. All of this was geared towards Egypt and Turkey. I wanted to do Egypt and that was a whole idea of doing the audition, getting in with these people. And then they closed down the comedy side of the Egypt and Turkey gigs. And I'd done the other ones loads of times just to get to do those ones. And then, then they got closed down. So I, I still haven't done Egypt and I still haven't. I visited Turkey, but I've never done a show there. Well, I, 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 there, there is, I told you before, like in March 2020, before the COVID, uh, COVID mania kicked in and all the borders shut down and all the madness kicked off. Actually, no, in February, I was in discussions with the owner of uh, multiple branched venues and the guy that was in charge of uh, when I was explaining to him, you know, comedians are wanting to come from the UK you know, bucket list mentality, you know, I've never gigged in Egypt, I'd like to gig in Egypt. And because he has so many venues, and when I explained to him that these comedians were willing to pay from their own money, their airfare and their hotel fare to be able to come and visit Egypt, he realized, well, then yeah, they should totally get the opportunity to entertain. So that venue is waiting for the, the, the mania to die down. So I've got venues ready and lined up for when mm. we get back to some semblance of normality. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So inshallah, maybe by this year, you might get your one of your Christmas wish lists. Yeah. Istanbul yeah. is a bit hard is it? Yeah. <laughs> to get yeah. into now because of uh, all the political situation there. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I because of, so what my normal, what my normal um, circuit life is like, so like yeah. normally now, with this being January, I would be in Australia. I'd normally be in Australia for four months. And then I normally do somewhere in Asia on the way back from Australia or on the way to Australia. Right. And then normally October, I would I try to find a new country to tour in. And uh, last year was going to be Canada. Now I've done Canada a few times but I just felt it up to the point that it looked like I could organize a trans-Canadian from east to west tour, uh, probably a month. Yeah, of, course, gotcha. of course, the virus caused everything to shut down. So I would love to do something like, I would love to do something like, uh, get, get to Egypt and do something in Egypt and then build uh, some countries, like maybe three countries on the way back again from Egypt. That, that would be like the dream trip for something like that. I'm going to try and get in touch with the Moroccan comedy scene and see if we can 
make something happen because I know there is a lot of French Moroccan uh, comedians that perform in France and they also do concert comedy concerts in yeah. Morocco. I saw it a lot of times on French TV. So yeah. it'd be well, interesting. I, I, looked at, I looked at Morocco uh, for a while. There was an uh, an ex uh, an, an English guy that used to be a comedian and he was living in um, Marrakesh. He was living and working in Marrakesh. And wow. he invited me and another comedian to come over because he reckoned it was viable to have an English speaking comedy tour. So he, he was going to use us as the experiment and we were going to, to see if the gig was viable. And mm. then he was going to fly people out. You would get five days in Marrakesh. You yeah. would do two gigs. And um, so you made enough money to make it worthwhile. Then he'd fly you back again. And he had said he'd worked that out as being viable. Then unfortunately, what happened with that was Brexit became a reality and he moved his business to Ireland. He moved his oh. business to Ireland because uh, of the Brexit thing. So he needed to have his, uh, not his comedy business, his real, his real world business so um but yeah so it seems you like make it sound like us comedians are not <laughs> working in the real world well mate that's my that's my claim to that's my my claim to fame as i've managed to spend my life not working in the real world we're, we're we're almost as far away from the real world as you can get in my opinion i know we've always had the lovely back and forth discussing pop cultural references but i don't know I'm sure you must have remembered the cartoon Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, yeah. So the creator of Beavis and Butthead, Mike Judge, he also created King of the Hill. Ah, uh, yeah, I haven't seen that, but I know what that about cartoon. It. Yeah, did you ever see the film he also created, which was based on small MTV animations called Office Space? No, not seen it. I, it's one of those films I would always recommend to anyone who wants to stay focused on the creative aspect and avoid working in an office. Mm. And, and I saw that film on Dubai TV like 21 years ago. That was the day I was like, I don't want to ever work in an office for as long as I can live. I never yeah. want to work in an office. Um, well, I've, now, I've, never had, um, I've never had a straight world job. So I've, I've never worked in the straight world. The, the closest... The closest I've ever been is like sometimes when I've been on holiday, I've done like volunteer work for things. So like, for example, I was once on an extended holiday in Central America. And as mm -hmm. part of it, I did some conservation work, working uh, in the timber industry, removing some trees. Right. And so, so we were basically, we were logging, but for sustainability. And so I experienced that job. But uh -huh. I don't count that because it was such hard work, it was unbelievable hard work. But I was doing it for two weeks. So it doesn't really count. Those other guys that were there doing it, the locals that were doing that work, when they were doing that for their entire life, one of the guys, he was the specialist operator of the really big chainsaws, you know, those really massive chainsaws, like I'm going to say eight foot long chainsaws. Wow. And he, um, he had done that his whole life. He was probably 50 and he had numb fingers from the vibration all the wow. time. So he damaged his hands to the point of a constant numbness in his fingers. And when you shook hands with him, it's like he didn't have any grip in his hand. So I, so I really don't count that I did that job because I was mm. really doing it for two weeks to get a taste of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't imagine being in an office. 
what would be the strain because like obviously you have a, a taste for experimenting with strangeness so what would be the strangest non-office job other than that job like what would be the, like the first that comes to your mind as a super strange job you did once and you're like i can't believe i did that job oh so i can tell you a nice story and uh Lovely. so uh, about 19 years ago yeah. i uh was traveling in australia and i was in a place called broom which is northwestern australia and i went out to the um i went out to the bird observatory so i like wildlife and nature i went to the bird observatory and they did they did trips where you would go out with the expert and he'd show you the birds but it was very quiet it was just after the wet season so the roads were almost impassable so there's nobody right. there and i just got talking to the people there there was no, nobody there except the staff i got talking to the people there and they said oh we've got a big group of um uh, older people of pension age people that are getting brought out do you want to stay and you can stay for free if you carry the equipment for the older people because they they're not as mobile etc that uh, they could be so you carry the equipment so i literally had the job of carrying the tripods with the telescopes on them that was that was literally my job so when a trip would come out I would carry two or three of these and a big rucksack with the drinks and with the sandwiches and stuff. And I, I was literally a tripod carrier for two weeks. Uh, but here's a nice, here's a nice bit of that story. The bird observatory in Broome, it's out on a place called Robot Bay. And it's it's out of bed. Sorry, did you say Robot Bay? Like ro Robot. Ro Robot, like the type of Oh Robot. Oh, yeah. Okay. I heard robot, sorry. Yeah, robot, robot. And and um so what one of my jobs was, my last job while I was there was yeah. I, um, me and another guy, our job was to walk from the town out to the, from the outskirts of the town out to the bird observatory. And we were walking the track that they were going to lay a water pipe along. And the way they lay the water pipe is they've got a kind of bulldozer thing and it knocks down trees as it goes along and it lays the pipe automatically with like a sort of plow system. But what our job was, because it was for yeah. a bird of players, we had to go and look at the vegetation and go, no, that tree has got a have got birds nesting in it. This tree is such and such. And we had to mark the route, which kind of didn't just go on a straight line, it kind of snaked through. So we were avoiding the things that were important to nature. So we walked the, the line of the, the the things behind us. We walked the line, we mark it every day, stake it out every day. Then the bulldozer guy just follows the line. And my visa ran out, honestly, about four, three or four hundred meters from the end. My visa ran out and I had to, I had to leave. So I left and that was all good. And then uh, I, that was about 19 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. And two years ago, I went back to that bird observatory as a yeah. guest. And yeah. I went back to the bird observatory. And I just, um, I said hello to everybody. I checked in, I uh, got a camping site, checked in, and I went to the camp kitchen, which is the outdoor barbecue kitchen area. Yeah. I turned the tap on and I had a drink of water from my pipe because it hadn't been finished when I left. So it took me almost 20 years to get back there to have a drink of water from my pipe. And then I, um, I then went and I told the staff, there were, again, it was quiet. It was just after the wet season. It was pretty quiet there. I'm hanging around chatting to the staff. Oh, you know, I, I was here before. And um, they looked back in the bird sightings book. We looked all the way back 
and like they've got bird sightings registered for 150 years in, in, wow. that, in that bird obs. And they look back at some of my, some of the ones that I'd put in all that time ago. And then uh, the next morning I got up and the bird warden came up to me and he reached me a, um, he reached me some tools and pointed me in the direction of a new trail and I, I cut a new trail for them. So in 20 years time, I go back and I'll have a look at that trail. Wow. That's, yeah. I, I mean, like, I try to think of my crazy, strange jobs. And I think the only job that can come remotely close to that was once being chief of security at a nightclub in Egypt. Ah. That was like a, old, like a bouncer. I was the guy in charge of the bouncers. Okay, what was that like? It was strange. It was horrible working nights. Mm. Um, it was also doubly horrible dealing with uh, drunken fights, but I never actually had to, I could just literally just like tap one of the gorillas, the, the steroid gorillas. Yeah. We had, we had two types of bouncers. We had these, you know, one was even nicknamed Hogan because he modeled himself on Hulk Hogan in appearance, but like the Egyptian version of Hulk Hogan. Uh, and then we had the other types, which were these scrawny little guys with little wooden clubs and uniformed shirts. And mm. it was just a case of just tapping one of them on the shoulder and pointing in the direction and they would go and yeah. deal with the scenario. Uh, but when I, when I was a um, when I was at school, I, I played sport and, and I, I was I was kind of this this tall. In fact, I was this tall and heavier than I am now. Well, when I, I was meeting you in 2014, you were quite bulky. Yeah, yeah. So I was I used to powerlift and stuff. So I used to be a bit bigger. And um, I remember at school when I was about 14, perhaps 15. So I was in Northern Ireland, so, you know, with all the troubles and so on, massive unemployment. Uh, and I was at school and the, the teacher took me and my friend to one side, the sports teacher. Mm. And he said, look, if you guys keep going the road you're going, you're going to do well at rugby, play for the local rugby club. And, uh, and he named a guy that owned a nightclub and he goes, that guy will give you a job. As soon as you're 18, you'll get a job as a bouncer in, in that night, in the nightclub. And I went home and said to my mom, quite excited, I went, oh, the teacher has told me that if I do well at rugby, I might get a job in the local nightclub as a bouncer. And my mom was quite excited. Well, this is great because there were no job prospects at, at all. And now, Every time I, I'm in, in a club or in a comedy club and I see an older bouncer, like I see a guy in his 50s having to chuck out drunk people, I really feel like I dodged a bullet. Because you think, imagine that had become your job, like your, your all-time, full-time job, such a dealing with drunk people. Ugh. Well, I don't know if we've got, I hopefully we have a little time for this quick anecdote slash weird, tragic, twisted story. Um, there was one shift in when when would we not have time for a weird <laughs> tragic tr twisted story there's always time <laughs> we will we'll make the time for a twisted tragic <laughs> yeah. story this was actually the catalyst <laughs> this is actually the catalyst that made me go yeah I don't want this job anymore just like what you were saying about dodging the bullet um, there was one night in particular and Hogan, the bouncer I mentioned earlier, was the guy that I heard from one of the small security, like the uniformed bouncers came up to me and said, there's a situation you need to come and help with. 
as I came to this like concrete stairway that had no banisters, so it's quite a health hazard if you're drunk because you have nothing to grab onto except, you know, hopefully protect. Anyway, Hogan was walking down this. What happened? Some other bouncer had thrown a drunken patron down that flight of stairs. Then Hogan grabbed that patron, held him in a headlock, walked down a corridor to throw him out. And I, I was just like, you know, when you're, you're, you're the boss of bouncers and you're just sort of like standing there with a, what the fuck is going on here? Can somebody explain to me, clue me in? And then one of the other bouncers came and said, well, what happened was the guy Hogan just threw out, was very drunk and had slapped a woman. And the one thing that Egyptians don't allow or tolerate, I rock, there's this, like in a public forum, you don't allow any kind of violence, especially towards women or children. Mm. And I think something in all of those bouncers snapped, which is why they just literally threw him out like a piece of garbage. Mm. But the next day, before the shift started, before patrons came in, there was a meeting in the office. As I was coming into the nightclub, on the outside, there was a police truck with 20 police officers. And when I came inside into the nightclub, there were no police there. But when I came into the manager's office, every single bouncer was stood on all four walls of the office while this guy was ranting in Arabic. And I looked at him, I didn't recognize him at first, but what I did recognize was the electric taser in his pocket. And he was basically walking around going, in Arabic, you know, Mishda, Mishda, which means not him, not him, not him. And he came in front of me. Bear in mind, if you remember, I had nothing to do with this. And he looked at me, he paused and he said, not him either. And he basically, he didn't identify who was the one who slapped him, who was the one who threw him out. And the, the manager tried to coax him and tell him, look, we're really, really sorry, please, you know, come tonight, have a free bottle of champagne on us, whatever, tried to, he, because he must have been connected basically. Mm. And mm. when he left, the bouncer responsible was this big, huge, he was the tallest, the strongest out of all of us, but he started crying because it was him. And I was like, what's going on? What's wrong? And he goes, you don't understand what was going to happen. He was going to electrocute whoever it was, take us outside to the truck with the police, beat the living crap out of us and leave us in the desert or worse. You know, and that was the big, huge, I need to get out of this job. Yeah. All right. That, that, yeah. And um, which leads me to an interesting to the next question for you. Because I understand, I've seen your videos about juggling and knife throwing from your earlier career in the circus, correct? Yes. Now, and have you... Hopefully, hopefully current career, because I, I still do my, um, I still do the circus shows. So I've got right. a circus. I've got a juggling double act that I do with another guy from Ireland called Logie Logan. So yeah, so we're still... The one with the other, the guy you do the dirty tattooed uh, bastards? Dirty tattooed circus bastards. We do that. That's we've got an show. And we've got another show called Circus Sonus, which is a family friendly. Sonus is the word happiness in Irish. So it's like circus happiness. And it's a family friendly juggling show. So we also do that together. Um, great fun. Really, really good fun. Um, well, I was going to say, because you remember the whole 
retraining advertising campaign that the British government tried to do for all of us that were yeah. struggling with the Corona, the Corona comics, Corona comics, econ economic. Did you ever think about, you know, retraining and possibly starting your own ninja clan? Because doesn't the world need more ninjas? Uh, how would we possibly know? Because we have no way of knowing how many ninjas they are. Because if we know who or where they are, they are not ninjas. But ninjas wear masks. Yeah, but we don't know where they are. There might, there could be a million ninjas. Could be ten million ninjas. How would we know? Because they walk amongst us. That's the whole idea about ninjas: is you don't know where or when they're going to turn up. I like that answer. So <laughs> I know with the pandemic and the lockdown that you've been offering online tutoring in various aspects of the craft of stand-up comedy, a service that I have even been benefiting from myself. What made you decide to take a more altruistic, dare I say, philanthropic approach with your skill set? Oh, so to be completely honest, I, so coming from a circus background, mm. but my background is very most of it not the early early period but most of it was based in non-animal circus it was yeah. the, the new thing about non-animal circus it was kind of often had community roots to it so it was like teaching children and so on like that that evolved to be the at its biggest form became Cirque du Soleil grew out of that movement but it's always been that thing of sharing and look it, it's not as ultra altruistic as it might seem because you share this stuff. Like, for example, if there's good comedy, the more mm. good comedy there is, the more people like comedy, the better comedy is, the more chance we get more work doing it. So it is literally what goes around comes around. And, and mm. I actually think that if comedians aren't helping other comedians, that they're actually, they should be. The older comedians should be helping the younger comedians. They should be passing on advice because the better the whole thing is, the better it is for all of us. But also, look, the truth is, I'd, um, I'm, I'm away traveling six months of the year normally. I have six months overseas with my, on my circuit as it is. Mm. And a couple of years ago, I'd already decided that when I came to the UK, I didn't still want to be away. I, I, you know, I was averaging over 200 nights in hotels every, every single year. And I decided- Takes I a toll on you, doesn't it? just been away from home all that time like for all this all my life you know literally all my life so i was 41 before i really lived anywhere like i had rooms and houses but i was always on the road so right. what i had done was a couple of years ago i decided to shrink my uk circuit because i was on the global circuit i decided that gigs needed to be within two hours of my house with except for the stand comedy clubs in scotland which i do once a month the the rest of it needed to be home gigs they all needed to be gigs that i would drive home from and you, you'll remember from when you were here in the uk the roads are terrible so you for example i it was it's not unusual that i would drive to cardiff it would take me nine hours to get there i would do the gig and then overnight when the roads would go quiet it would take three hours to come back so a journey of three hours can it can easily take you nine hours so so what i'd done was i shrunk my circuit so that i was around more and the thought was well if i'm going to be around more i can do stuff while i'm here because basically comedy if you take the traveling away it's it's a part-time job isn't it if, yeah. you, if you take 
traveling aspect away. So mm-hmm. if I've got a gig in Manchester, I, I don't need to leave leave here where I live. I don't need to leave until like six o'clock in the evening. So um, I'd already started putting stuff in place for online. I was already teaching. I've, I've never not been teaching. I've taught all the way through, mostly at a local university. I've always been teaching. Uh, like when I go to Australia, I would do the Western Australian Circus Festival, mm-hmm. work with the professionals there. And then Zoom came. We got locked down. Zoom came. This one-to-one thing made it possible. So I've worked with yourself in Egypt, clients in America, clients in Canada, clients in Australia. Um, all of our later on today, I've got a client in New York that I'll be working with. And so Zoom has really made that aspect really possible. And because everybody's at home anyway, they're um, they're looking to do some work on their on their gigs for for when it comes back. And how are the Zoom gigs treating you? Like, are you like one of those comedians that's doing well with the Zoom gigs? Because a lot of them talk about the whole, like Jojo Sutherland in episode three mentioned about doing a gig at the stand that was online and that she had to focus primarily on the camera in front, that she couldn't even exchange looks with audiences to the left or to the right, the bar staff and other comedians, socially Mm. distant. Why, Why couldn't she? Uh, she was, I think she was advised to keep the focus because apparently it was something to do with the audience that were at home watching on the camera. Mm, okay. Needed to feel that she was connected to them rather than to the people that were outside of the camera scope. So and, my, my thought on that is I've, I've been teaching, I've been teaching people um, how to approach Zoom gigs because a, right. lot, of the, a lot of my clients can't do a, a live gig. So they want to do something. They want to try out their writing. So they're doing Zoom gigs. So I, I've been teaching and I've got a, a, some theories on it. But I think the, the bottom line is, is so I've done corporates where I've, I did an hour on, on my own, you know, mm. just one person for an hour. And I think it's literally this, this, this one straight on camera that we have yeah. is exhausting to people yeah. to watch. So they're at home, so they're kind of at a comedy club. People are up, they're drinking, they're moving around, their their energy's up, they're excited. At home, they're on their sofa and they're laying back. And th- this one angle, like you'd never see that in a movie, that you would just you would have one camera shot for a long time. There's always some movement in it, or a zoom in it, or a little bit of thing. So I tried to introduce that. That's exactly what I've tried to do in my performance. Is I tried to move uh, this part of my my shoulders around. I try to move as if I'm on stage within the constraints of one camera to change the angle a little bit. You, you might, you may or may not have noticed, even when we have done a, a session together, you and I, every so often, and it's approximately every 15 minutes, I move my chair back or I change. Even sometimes I would move slightly to one side just so that you're not looking at the same thing. So I tried to do that roughly in an hour session, roughly every 15 minutes. I tried to move my body position. So, so I move the camera. I can't move the camera because it's on my laptop and static. So I move my body as if I've moved the camera. Yeah, I mean, like I, I try to also like, you know, I mean, obviously to, to slightly change. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in a Bond villain chair, but like, you know, I do try my best, Mr. Bond. So look, if, I, if, I was, if I was giving anyone advice for the stand-up uh, is if you can set it up that you can stand up. So that's why I was trying to work with that other camera, which um, I had some technical problems with now. That's why you I'm need to go into to the settings. Yeah, I need to go to the settings of that camera 
and stop it turning itself off. That should be quite an easy job. But because I, in an ideal world, I should be able to just move back and stand up and that other camera will still focus on me and it, it will check. Oh, is it one of those auto moving cameras? Like No, it's not. I do have one of those as that I'm playing with. I have a gimbal thing yeah. that, would, that, that would follow you. But, but this one, I think that thing of the changing of the focus will, will do something different to make it more um, palatable, like to sit and just have the one shot. But yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been trying to move around. I try to, I try to make them as interactive as possible. So like if I've done a corporate, I'll find out things. I'll have jokes specifically for specific people. So then I can maybe um, highlight them on the screen. So they're full screen. And I think it's anything that breaks. But my, my impression is with Zoom is that some people are just doing them like a live gig and going away dissatisfied because it wasn't as much fun as a live gig. And right. some apps are really embracing it. And I think it's going to be the people that do it well, that aren't just standing there doing their set to one camera, the people that have adapted their material, because you wouldn't go and do a radio show where you just do your set. You wouldn't do it. You adapt the set. And I think so many acts haven't bothered because they didn't think it was going to last. They haven't bothered adapting a set for, for Zoom. And I think the people that have adapted their sets for Zoom are going to, it's going to keep happening. It's going to keep happening in the future. So in, a, so in a, and I can't believe me as a Muslim is saying this, but I guess in a way, Zoom gigs have proved the theory of evolution. Well, that is that thing, isn't it? You know, they say that survival of the fittest, you know, quote, survival of the fittest. Mm. And, 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 it, that, and it, it's wrongly attributed to Darwin because it's actually Alfred Wallace. Alfred, Russell, Alfred Wallace Russell that, that said that. Uh, wow. uh, Alfred Russell Wallace. Yes, he's, a, he's the other guy that came up with evolution, isn't he? I'm pretty sure that's what he's called. Alfred Russell Wallace. And he, um, but the Darwin one is, is the, in roughly in the survival of the fittest thing, the Darwin one is, is, is the, the, the creature that adapts to a changing situation is the yeah. one that's going to survive. And I've seen this happening now that people that were, I know some acts that were doing okay, that were kind of making a decent living, but just doing okay. Right. And they have thrived under this. They've done voiceover work. They're doing Zoom gigs. I, I've got one friend in particular is now getting proper TV in the, in, and making much more money than they ever made. And it's because they really adapted to the situation and that's who's going to do well i think it's a big reset i think at the end of this it's it, the scene's going to be completely changed there's been a huge reset now and um i think it's, it'll not come back the same as it it was before it'll be different i think it uh, i mean i don't know if it's callous to say but i guess though those the mediocrity the mediocre acts that thought they were better then mediocre will be proven that because they didn't adapt or they didn't. Oh, yeah. And maybe even the really great acts that didn't adapt. Maybe, maybe that's it as well. So what, one of the things was a lot of the uh, cliche is completely a cliche, but that the older acts had not, even before the um, uh, COVID. COVID, even before that, the older acts weren't adapting to, um, the internet weren't adapting to technology, weren't learning, weren't, didn't have to. Look, and I've been guilty of this myself for about 15 years ago, 
My diary was always full. I was always busy as a live act. I didn't even have a website. Didn't have a website, didn't really have an internet presence as such. I had Facebook kind of just to my mates. And you know, I, I noticed with that, I thought, well, I have to have that because if I don't start having an internet presence, I totally get left behind. And I think now some of those acts that haven't bothered to adapt, they, will, they probably will get left behind. Because now you not only have a Facebook page, not only do you have two Instagram accounts, you're on Twitter, and you have a website, and you've got a YouTube channel. Uh, is there anything two, else? Two YouTube channels. Two YouTube channels. So you've actually got yourself out there on seven different layers of digital platform. So that yeah. is that is the pinnacle of evolution. Yeah, and look and now, it's that now, exactly this. This is, um, oh, well, you and I already talked about this, about, about podcasts. Mm. So now that, that so a lot of people are doing podcasts, but look, this is a new, this is a whole new world, isn't it? It's like at one point there were probably comedians who were really good live comedians who completely refused to do the newfangled radio. They didn't want to go on the radio because that was a, was a newfangled thing and it was going to die off. And they're definitely, even in my career, there were comedians that wouldn't do TV and they would turn down TV because if they did the material on TV, they were afraid that they would lose that material because it, it would have been seen and would have been gone. Whereas now people are just throwing their material out all the time. We're all putting comedy clips up. If we were doing live gigs now this week, I'd be putting a, a live clip of me doing stand up. So it's really, it is changing and evolving right before our very eyes. That's very true. Uh, I mean, in a way, like a chess master planning three, five steps ahead, you always appeared like ever since I met you to be planning 12 steps ahead, like 12 months ahead. Hmm. And how do you accomplish such a high level of productivity and logistical maneuvering? And what role does self-representation play in your identity as a creative? Okay, so I, I am usually booking 12 months ahead and sometimes a little bit more. Right. So my, my, in normal life, by about, so pre-COVID, by about October, I would normally have not fully booked the next year, but I would have the backbone of that. So by the backbone of it, I mean, I would have all my bills and expenses and my life covered. Mm. And then I could start putting in the other things. So I would have like probably all of my touring gigs lined up and all of my festival gigs lined up. So I would be booking a bit in advance. That was, um, I always did that, even when it wasn't the fashion in comedy. I always was looking ahead because in circus, if you were booking three or four years ahead, that was completely unremarkable. People that were doing Vegas, some acts would have been, would have had bookings in for 10 years ahead. Um, but yeah, so I always do try to be, I always did try to be a, a year ahead. Um, I think with that, it, if you don't know, if you just wait and see what happens, you you have no way of structuring it then. So you sort of need that that backbone in there, if that makes sense. Um, also now, look before just before we we locked down, bookings were moving further ahead. People like the stand. I mentioned the stand because I know you've done the stand. Yeah. The stand Edinburgh. Even for a new act to get on it, they they have a night called Red Raw. And their Red Raws, the new acts, they maybe have 10 acts on in, in a night. They all try out five minutes of new material. There's a six-month waiting list. So even wow. the new acts maybe doing their first gig, 
or having to book that six months in advance. So it had got to that that planning ahead stage already. Because, yeah, I think I remember Comedy Cafe before it closed down in London. You actually had, like, and this was back in 2005 when I gigged there. Um, I remember I had to apply like three months in advance. And like, yeah. just, and, re and just touch base with them every month leading up to the date. Uh, and they were very, very kind about it because they don't make you feel like you're nagging them. On the contrary, it's just because they they know they created the waiting list system. Mm. So, mm. Um, so I, I think the reset's going to change that because the when we when we start back. So I'm taking gigs. I've got bookings in the diary that have come in th like this year for mm. uh, September of this year. So September wow. 2021. And they're still under the agreement that there's a certain fee if it's a if there's social distancing and there's another fee. So basically it's a half fee if they can only half fill the venue and it's the normal full fee if there's no social distancing. And that's for September. But wait, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, are you saying that because of social distancing venues in the UK are paying comedians half if at half capacity? Yes. They're, they're, they're offering half, uh, some venues. I don't know if it's all the venues. No, I know for a fact it's not all of the venues. Yeah. But for some of the venues, it's that it's like based off how many people in the audience can come. Uh, and so because they can only make half the money, the mm. fees of half fee, but what that will do is that will mean that a lot of pro acts couldn't take those gigs. Um, right. And the it gives it if you've got a job. If you work in a coffee shop and you can go and, and you're a good act and you can go and do a gig, it's going to give lots of opportunities for newer acts. But I, I, I think it's fair enough. I understand it because these people can't, they can't be spending their own money at this stage because it's not in their hands. It's the government will, will shut things down. And if the government suddenly, if, if somebody offers me X amount of money and the, um, the government suddenly shut them down, well, they're probably struggling anyway. So, so my thought on it, for I, I don't expect everybody will think the same. My thought is by taking those gigs on that mm. arrangement uh, is how we would support the circuit. That's how we would support each other because they're trying to give me work mm. and that's the only way they feel that they can do it. And I think it's fair enough because they've had almost a year of not making any money, haven't they? Well, yeah, but the thing is, like, I mean, for me, I recently discovered that there's a comedy venue in Cairo and they've marked up their price. They're at half capacity, but they marked up their, uh, the cost of the tickets to now being, uh, they, they used to be a hundred Egyptian pounds and they're now up to 200 Egyptian pounds. So they've gone up from just under a five to just under a tenner. Hmm. So they've actually, doubled the price of the ticket but at the same time it's a way of trying to cover the so that a comedian like a group of but this is the interesting the weird twist thing uh, and i don't know if i explained it i explained it to one of my other guests and i'll explain it to you like here in egypt a lot of the comedians are like say for example on episode one i had ahmed al-haridi uh, he's also a dentist so he's got another source of income and he also wants to try out for to become a content creator in advertising. 
Um, Dr. Farouk, who was the episode four guest, he's a psychiatrist. Uh, his partner in crime for El No Talents, which is like an Egyptian equivalent of Flight of the Concords from New Zealand. Hmm. Uh, Ahmed Al Sharkawi is a neurosurgeon, and Dr. Mohammed Al Farouk, psychiatrist. Dr. Mohammed Morgan, who is another doctor, radiologist. So a lot of them are engineers, architects. They've all got like a main industry, like a main income. Hmm. And for them, comedy is something they do on the side for the love of the game, for the love of being a comedian. So it's very interesting, like they, for them, for like there are very, very few comedians on the Egyptian circuit that are trying to make their money exclusively from comedy. Like I'm one of those few, but I'm starting to go into becoming, you know, part-time graphic designer, part-time this, part-time that. Uh, I haven't opened up any sweatshops yet, but you know, we're getting there. <laughs> the current economy. Um, and I think that's the way I think comedy's been heading this way pre-COVID anyway. My my impression is that it's going to be a little bit like actors. So if you look at actors, mm. there's a huge amount of actors and who've trained and been to drama school or university and trained and, and done stuff, and they're all working in coffee shops. Like if you go to LA, everyone is an actor, every rest, every waiter, every waitress, everybody is, is all an actor. And I think this is what's going to happen with comedy. There's going to be a massive, and this is no comment on how good their show is. No, they might be absolutely fantastic, but they'll never make a complete living from it. So there's going to be a whole strata of these people. And let's say they're some of them are really, really good, but they're always making their main living from their main job like your friend that's a doctor or what, whatever then there'd be a middle section and that middle section probably somebody like me like a circuit act and the middle section are probably making the same kind of money as an actor that, that gets an occasional part or gets an advert or does something like that and so they're they're not a household name but you'd kind of maybe recognize them for oh that's that guy that was in that thing and there'll be a few of those maybe a couple of thousand of those in the uk and then there'll be a very few, like 20 big names that can fill a stadium, like the rock star comedians here in the UK on TV, the same 20 people get all the TV, the big agents have control over it. They'll be, the, they'll be selling out stadiums and massive theatres and they'll be multimillionaires making rock star money. And I think it'll be like that. And if you, if you think of that, that's like virtually every business and everything that we've got anyway, is there's all the workers barely getting by people maybe doing two jobs few people doing okay and then the people at the top making all the making more money than they they really need um i wish it was more spread out but i don't think it's going to be i think it's the the top section and the the middle section are going to squeeze and the bottom section is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and soon you'll see fantastic comedians and they just they just won't make and the public won't know the public don't know I can give you I can give you an example of this. I did um in in one of the local towns, they have a regular regular comedy venue, it's like a, a, a council-owned theater, quite a big theater. And I've done that theater a couple of times as a support act TV names. So I've been there with the TV names, done the support. And I turned up one time to do it uh, just with myself at their comedy night. And the technician said to me, he said, oh, you're my favorite act. He said, you're, you're my favorite act. And I said, oh, that's very kind of you. He said, I saw you with, 
He names the other acts that he saw me with. And you're an absolute favourite actor. I see all the comedy. You're my absolute favourite. And that's very kind of you. Thank you. This is the, the sound engineer. And then he said, uh, how do you make your living? And I said, oh, no, doing this. Mm. And he went, oh, I just... I've never seen you on the TV. And I went, no, I don't, I don't really get, I don't really get TV. Uh, but no, I make my living from this. And even somebody in the industry mm. who already had acknowledged the standard of the work I was producing, because I was his favorite act, even compared to these TV names, yeah. he didn't see how I could be making a living. So it's it's strange that the public just don't know. They, they, I guess there's people in the UK, probably see me everywhere, people who think of themselves as big comedy fans. And they could only name you those 20 acts that appear regular on British TV. And they never go to comedy clubs. They just don't, they don't know. Um, it's, it, I, I don't know. Cause like, I remember, I mean, before I get to the last question, I mean, I remember once years ago, um, I met a, like we could say he was a first timer, open micer. And this was in Cairo. Um, and I had just, I mean, I'd started doing comedy in 2002. I'd done like Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2005. I was cameoing as Iranian president Ahmadinejad in Patrick Monaghan's show, Do the Right Thing in 2006. I did my own show with Peter Buckley Hill's Free Fringe uh, called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Middle East. And then I moved to Egypt. Now. I don't think that, you know, the, I mean, obviously some comedians feel the level of success is shown in whatever credentials, whatever references you can say like, oh, I've been on this, I've been on Mock the Week and so on and so forth. Um, but when, when he had gotten off stage, I mean, this comedian, uh, oh, I say comedian, at that time he was just definitely a brand new, he was not a comedian, he was like a first timer, Micer. And he performed very badly to the point of um, trying to get the audience to applaud a joke that wasn't that good. So when he came off the stage and I, you know, and the next act was on, I took him to the side and I said, look, just a little piece of advice. It's comedian etiquette not to guilt trip the audience into applauding a joke you did that you think is funny but no one laughed to, you know, that, then he turned around because he was offended by that. And he said, well, how come I haven't heard of you? You know, and I just sort of said, well, there are plenty of comedians that are all over the world that don't go onto television, don't go into this, don't go into that. Does not mean that they are any less of a comedian, but sure. I mean, like, what would you think? I mean, cause like, I know, you from the fringe of 2014 i met you with bronston jones mm. did the laugh out loud olympics was it called the lol olympics wasn't it yeah 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 where right. you and bronston were doing a gig where you would bring comedians from around the world in an olympics of comedy um you did the irish i'm sorry forgive me for getting the name you did a show at the stand that was called irish comedians or irish hour or best of irish yeah best of irish yeah and you are known among the circuit like you're you're a known comedian in britain and around the world because as you said you've gigged in mongolia cambodia nepal you've gigged all over the world and just because a comedian 
in Egypt might not have heard of you does not mean that you're any mm -hmm. less a success. Sure. And look, look, even this now with this this reset idea of mine is I think this is what was going to happen. The acts that adapt that so like now, pre-COVID, mm -hmm. people on the TV, now some people that you or I have never heard of will have podcasts that will be getting more listeners or more more subscribers than some TV programs are getting. And now it's gone. It's changed now, I think. People have access to this now. There's I, I, A couple of years ago, I was doing a, a run of gigs. I was in a big comedy club in the UK, like what I called the Glee Club. Glee Club in Birmingham, well, probably the best comedy club in the UK. And I was just sitting there and like looking at what they had on. They have music on. They have, they have a comedy club, but they have music and stuff. And I noticed that there's a couple of people on. I said, oh, I don't, who are these guys? I don't, I don't know these guys. Oh, they've sold out. They've put on an extra night. And they were American YouTubers. Oh. And that was all good. And, and I, I, oh, I, I never heard of these guys. And then I Googled them while I was sitting there. I Googled them on my phone. And mm -hmm. it turned out they were selling America, two American YouTubers. They were selling out all the good comedy venues in the UK, theatres. And they weren't stadiums, but they were big, big venues. And in an interview that I looked at with them, uh, I'd never heard of them. And the young men, two young men. And in an interview, one of them said, oh, the first time we were in a comedy club, Mm. We had sold it out. So they'd never even come up through the comedy clubs. And I think this is a, is a great reset. There's, there's somebody now, there's yeah. a young young kid, mm. astute about technology, sitting now in their bedroom, and it's, it's punk rock. They're going to make content that will make them a living as a comedian, will be great for them as a comedian. They'll do a big breakthrough, all online. They never have to be in the comedy clubs. They never have to befriend the BBC, if the, B if the executives at the BBC who generally older and maybe a bit cl clueless about what's actually happening. So there's going to be breakthrough stuff come in this new media, uh, definitely. I think it's I, great. It's a great yeah, thing. I, 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 for I always forget her name, but several comedians that we mutually know and follow on Instagram follow her. She's, the, she's from Kenya. I think she's 18 or even possibly 17, like a teenager. Right. She's got 1.5 million followers, and all she ever does are videos of her one hand holding the phone, one hand eating potato chips, saying an off-the-cuff remark, lifting her sunglasses, laughing, and those are that's her style. Hmm. So there is, an, and I even saw like because remember I I had just posted something about to do with the stand, and when you try to enter the stand comedy club on Instagram, there's the stand in Edinburgh, the stand in Glasgow, stand in Newcastle, stand club in New York, which I don't know if it's affiliated with them. Mm, and, then, and then there's a stand comedy club at University of Leeds. Right. And they are bringing a comedy night. I think it's going to be online with three TikTokers, like two American, one English TikTok stars. So... TikTok seems to be the way forward. YouTube digital content. So it, uh, I think I think it, it is the thing. So that, that I don't know who you mean that Kenyan uh, woman that with the glasses. I, I haven't seen that, but the, the thing is, um, the thing with that is is that is probably limited to what it is, and it, it's probably great as that. But there'll also be this. I I love this. I love now 
that we can do a joke in the hashtag of a post, for example. So I could do a post today about something and the punchline or an extra laugh to that thing could be in the hashtag. And look, 10 years ago, we didn't really even use hashtags. And it's all these new ways that there's jokes like you can make, people can make a joke now just using emojis. And we never used emojis before. And I really love all of this, that there's this new, new stuff coming through, um, just new places to do jokes, isn't it? New, new ways to have a, have a laugh. Um, trying. Oh yeah, this chip here. I found the article. It's on CNN. Uh, this chip-eating Kenyan comic is keeping Africans entertained. Uh, Kenyan teenager. Her name is coming up. I'm loading up the article. Uh, I believe all she does literally is just eat potato chips, look at the camera, and laugh. Her name is Elsa Majimbo. She's taking over social media uh, because of the COVID-19. And she grew her audience figures organically. Like she, apparently from all I've read about her, you know how you can promote yourself on social media? You can boost, you can spend yeah. money to get yourself followers. She's done it organically and she's got 1.5 million followers in just under a year. Amazing. I mean, this is, a, it, it's literally, the chances are there and who would have thought that thing but like TikTok. so i remember when i first started looking at stuff for social media it was all it needs to be three minutes or more where now mm. TikTok, you can do a TikTok at 15 seconds yeah it's fantastic isn't it it's a fantastic if you could just do something in 50 seconds and you just never know this is the whole thing with it is you might post stuff and like i post juggling videos and yeah. i'm posting them up there you know, they get a few views, people like them, they're good for the people that get them, they're good for me to learn to do the, the camera work and the editing and all Absolutely, that stuff. Yeah. And you just never know what takes off. And it only takes one thing to take off. If you've got, if you've got something to follow it up with, if you've got more content and more substance, you could do really well. Like to give you an example, there was that, that year at the Edinburgh Fringe, just before Edinburgh, a guy, I think he was called something like Aaron Bershak, something like that. He's this guy. He dressed up like Osama bin Laden. The comedy he, terrorist. Yeah, he kissed one of the royal family. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he broke into Buckingham Palace in the summer of uh, 2004, I believe. Hmm. Uh, it was Prince William's birthday. Uh, and everybody was like, but wait, how did this man manage to break into Buckingham Palace? So that, that guy was huge in all the news, all the stuff. And he was this comedian. And we were all going, like, it's kind of, there was Facebook, wasn't there, in, in those days? But it was kind of less every day than it is now. It would have and been MySpace in those years. MySpace, it could have been, yeah, it could have been MySpace. Anyway, they um, all the talk on the circus was, was, this guy's in the newspaper as a comedian. Has anyone ever met him? Does anybody know who is this guy? We don't know him. Like, like now everyone can just write they're a comedian and, and people do people have just give themselves the title of comedian but this was more unusual and we were all going look that guy's literally got the best publicity for edinburgh he's going to be great and so when it, we got to edinburgh and we're all starting doing shows and it used to be a thing that uh, my group of friends did was we would choose a show every couple of days we would all go to a show and it was nearly always 
if somebody got one star, we would go to support that show. We would right. go to see, we would hardly ever go to do the, to see the shows that were doing really well. Right. And people who went to see his show said that he, he didn't have anything to back it up with because he got the break, but he wasn't the comedian. He hadn't, he could maybe have become a comedian, but he wasn't yet. And so I think that's what it is now is that if you're TikToking and you yeah. want to be a comedian, or you might do what that young woman has done with the crisps, but she should have more behind that, I reckon, because if she gets that break and they go, come and do the comedy club, well, what's she going to do then? And Is she just going to sit eating potato chips and talk to the audience? Yeah. yeah. So I, I think this is that. I think it, the niche, the nicheness of it gives people the chance. And then I think behind that, people do want more substances. It's like music, isn't it? That when people go to see comedy, they go, oh, we're just going to go and see comedy. You know, just go to a comedy club. But when mm. they go to music, they go, oh, we're going to go and see jazz or we're going to see rock and then, or we're going to go and see reggae. And they're more specific about what they want. And then mm. even beyond that, they go, oh, we're going to go and see Kiss or we're going to go and see ACDC or we're going to go and see what, what Bob Marley and the Whalers, whatever. And they go and see the stuff. And I think that's what we're going to have with comedy is people will be more niche. We're going to go and see this guy who does science comedy. We're going to go and this guy who does political comedy. And they might not know the name of the person they might not be a famous name yet they might not be bill burr or, or jerry seinfeld or but they're going we're going to go and see this type of comedy and they might be that we're going to go and see this person they're a tiktoker and so they're going to go and see something they yeah. know what they're going to say so a tiktoker in a comedy club maybe yeah. not great a tiktoker in a club where people have come to see that kind of content maybe they show it on a screen whatever uh i think it's brilliant and it's all really good stuff promising I, I will quickly say before before I get to the last question, I generally try not to speak ill of other comedians, whether they're good or not. Yeah. I always try to be as diplomatic and just say, yeah, I know it was a good, you know. But in regards to the that Aaron Barshak, I have to say I've seen him perform live maybe around 2003, early 2004, before the Prince William incident. And it wasn't comedy so much as it was just trying to push psychological buttons a hint mm. of andy kaufman you know okay. that trying yeah like not actual material but just sort of yeah. trying to get but something like who knows but if that guy had have got that break maybe five years later when he had when he'd worked over what he was doing and he knew what he was doing and then he got that break that was the consensus i remember from from the acts that had gone to see him was going was unfortunately he got the big break too soon and he wasn't ready to make the most of that opportunity he wasn't in a position and i, I don't think that guy i don't think he's a comedian now no I no no now i actually spoke to uh, a fellow comedian from the midlands slash north circuit and he knew him because we both started around the same time. He's from London originally. Uh, I think you know him, Gareth Berliner. Yeah, I do indeed, yeah. Oh, a nice guy, lovely guy. Very lovely guy. And I was talking to him because we both went to a comedy club in North London, in Finchley, I think. Uh, this was around 2003. And Aaron Barshak was on the same night as us. <laughs> and... We both knew of Aaron Barshak. I think Gareth knew him a bit better than I did because you would have seen him at other gigs. But I asked him recently this year, I was like, have you heard from Aaron Barshak? And he goes, I have no idea what happened to Aaron Barshak. Mm -hmm. 
See, he now, if that guy was around now, he'd probably be like a TikTok or a, a YouTube guy, wouldn't he, that RN fella? I, I think now, you know, because there is doom and gloom around, but I think this thing that I, I keep coming back to, this reset, I mm. think this, if you now, a young, not necessarily even young, an imaginative, creative person who is aspiring towards comedy, I'd say they have more chances than they ever had because you don't need the BBC to give you permission. You don't need some guy in a suit who is an executive to give you permission to perform. You can perform it on YouTube. And if you do something good, I guess you're also lucky. You do it good and you're lucky. You could have it. You've entered a lottery, haven't you? And you've got a chance that a million people watch it. I, I have a friend who was a comedian for a long time and um, who moved over to onto TikTok and has got like 2 million followers wow. on TikTok. And fantastic. And they they're an older comedian as well. And they adapted to that medium. And yeah, I think, look, this, this is the best time ever we've got. We, we will have the clubs again. We will have the touring circuit. We will always have the Edinburgh's and the Adelaide fringes. There's all that stuff. Plus there's YouTube, plus there's Facebook, plus there's TikTok, plus there's whatever's coming new next week. Inshallah. Egyptian podcasts. That's Egyptian English-speaking podcasts. Inshallah. Yeah. There's my yeah. USP. If there were 14 Vikings, because I know your advertise this was inspired by your new advertising campaign to do with the Vikings. <laughs> if there were 14 Vikings with full weapons kit against 14 samurai with their best of the best equipment, who do you think would win on that battlefield? Okay, so I think initially, the thing that springs to mind is the samurai were very well equipped with armor. You don't really hear a lot about it, but they had state of the art for its day armor. So they that did. armor might outweigh the ferocity of the Vikings. And uh, so I, but I'm going to say that because the, the samurai were doing it, they would have been caught up in honor mm. and the techniques and the actual, yeah. uh, the actual uh, art form, the art of war that would have been yeah. the samurai. I'm going to say the Vikings with that berserker attitude where they were just, and they loved that. And the thing with the, um, the samurai was if they did badly, they would be dishonored and they would have to kill themselves. Whereas for the Vikings, the greatest honor for them was to die on the oh. battlefield and to go to Valhalla, much like a stand-up comedian, you die on stage, <laughs> you go to the Valhalla of the green room where all your friends are reaching you drinks and patting you on the back, you, do, you die a good death. So I'm gonna say my money is on the Vikings uh, in, in that situation because they would love the fight more than the samurai would love the fight. The samurai would be worrying about being dishonored. The Viking mm. berserkers would be striving to get to Valhalla. To our Japanese listeners, we apologize. Uh, no, I think, I think that's also a good quality, but I think the Japanese attitude is very nice. Um, I, uh, I, I toured in Japan uh, a couple of years ago and um, wow, what a fantastic, what a fantastic country. My, my biggest problem was I traveled, I did the gigs, then I traveled yeah. around on my own. And my biggest problem was if you had to ask somebody for directions, mm. they, they would take you there. So at one point 
I was in a um, I was in a queue uh, in this in the station. There's a massive queue for tickets. Right. And I'm right. holding my brochure, which has in English and has in Japanese for the bullet train. And a young man in the queue in front of me noticed and he went, ah, you're queuing for the bullet train. And I said, yes, he said, this isn't the right queue. And he came out of his place in the queue and took me to the right queue. Uh, even more extreme example. I thought I knew where I was going to my hotel in Kyoto. I yeah. thought I knew where the hotel was. I'm following my, um, my map. I thought I knew where it was. <clears throat> there were roadworks that deterred me round, so I was in the wrong bet. I called into a laundry, like a public laundry. The guy closed his store and walked me to my hotel. And wow. that was the biggest problem was they were so courteous. You didn't want to disturb people by asking for directions because they would literally close their business and take you there. Oh, it reminded <laughs> me because I went to Japan in 2002 just for a holiday, not to gig. And I remember the difference I noticed straight away between Japanese teenage slash young aspiring musician buskers and British buskers is that in Britain, they're doing it for cash. In Japan, they didn't have their guitar cases open for money. They didn't have any collection thing. They're just doing it because they want to get discovered somehow. Ah, okay. So it was more about for entertainment for them. Um, I think Japan is one of those, I would love to gig in Japan. I, that is probably on my bucket list. Like you want to gig in Egypt, I want to gig in Japan. Well, so I, because the Japanese thing came right at the end of that same Mongolian tour, right. I had um, a week of gigs and then I had a week of traveling and just being there, I just a holiday. And as soon as I left, I thought I have to go back to that country. It's, it's definitely one of those places that you need it to is. spend more time. The, the language was really hard for me, uh, really difficult to try. When I went to the rural areas, my thing is I, I try to get away from tourist things. And I was doing things like visiting temples and shrines. Right. But like quite often, I was only visiting ones with other Japanese tourists. So I was on tourist stuff, but not Western tourist stuff. So I needed to be able to speak. And the language was very difficult for me to do. But the people were so nice that you got by. And it, it's kind of that kind of traveling is exhausting because you really have to engage with virtually everybody you meet. But it's yeah, also- You, you, you really can't travel to be alone there. You actually have to be- That's right, yeah. Which is, which is in fact fantastic, but you sort of, it's what is definitely one of those places that you sort of, um, before you left the hotel, you take a couple of deep breaths and you go, okay, <laughs> let me, and also, cause I look unusual, I tend to have people wanting to ask me things like where have you come from and you know so on uh but yeah fantastic i can highly recommend the gigs there um i'll, I'll tell you next time we're talking I'll, I'll hook you up with the gigs if there's ever a chance to go yeah so, Rob, inshallah because i even I, I when i was in japan i was wearing a basketball top because i have hairy arms uh, a lot of the japanese would look at me and especially when you're in those parts where there's not that many foreigners, not many, like, you know, like I was in a part of Japan, Northern part called Niigata, which I had to take like two flights to get to from when I arrived in Osaka, Kansai, I had to take a bus to Osaka, Itami, and then fly from Osaka, Itami to Niigata. And I just kept getting stared at, but not because I was big, but because I was hairy. 
and yeah. the Japanese very rarely have body hair. Yeah, man. So I, I find this, this is a thing that I'd found had changed. So that same tour, I was in Shanghai and I'd been in Shanghai 25 years before doing shows. When I was in Shanghai the 25 years before, what I did was I went six weeks early for mm. earlier than the gig and I yeah. went traveling and then I came back and did the gig. So I had my trip first. So I managed wow. to get quite far away. I traveled into some quite rural areas and literally there at one point, what I was doing was I had the guidebook, I had the, like a rough guide, Lonely Planet guidebook. Mm. And it had in the back section of it, a little helpful guide of it had written in English, bus station, or where is the bus station or cafe. Yeah. And it had words for it written in, in Chinese as well. So you could just point to the words if, if you were stuck. And people, so I was standing at a queue uh, near where there was like, it's not a bus station, but it's a rural area. It was the, the area where buses came to. And I asked somebody with the book and they took the book off me to, to ask, uh, to, to look at the words I pointed to of where is the bus to such and such. And as they took the book, their friend reached over and stroked my arm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had that. I've had that. And just laughed. And then what literally happened was a small queue formed of people wanting to look at my book and another little queue formed of people wanting to stroke my arm. <laughs> so it's such a weird situation and totally unoffensive and friendly and really yeah. And then what, what happened was, and I've discovered this is wherever you go, speak to a child because they can probably help you out. So a child came over this is in a rural area, quite a long way from the cities. And a little boy came who was probably about eight and he yeah. could speak English. And he told me he'd, he'd done English at school. So if you're ever stuck in a rural area, ask the kid. They probably know. Yeah. Wow. That is there. They always say there's I can't remember the origin of the saying, but never judge the age where wisdom comes from. Ah. And even when I was a teacher, I used to learn a lot from my students. It was a two-way street. Any good teacher knows that learning and teaching and education is a two-way street. It's mm. not just the teacher to educate the student. Sometimes the student can educate the teacher. Well, um, I think as you get older, like we have literally, you know, you say about your bandwidth. We mm. have literally got our bandwidths clogged. They're, it's clogged up with stuff and it's clogged up with, um, oh, I can't do that because, and it's, we're not confident. Well, with children, they're yet to have their bandwidth clogged up with stuff. So often they're really thinking very precisely. I suppose the Buddhists would say, the more you clear the clutter, the more childlike you, you would become in your thinking. And that's clearer thinking because, you know, little kids maybe aren't worrying. Ideally, they're not worrying about what other people think of them. Or um, It's why I love, um, I love children's jokes. When children tell jokes, I, I think it's fantastic because the imagination is so great that they're, they're just free thinking, aren't they? I, I said to a little guy at Edinburgh once, a, a child, I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, a five pound note. I thought, oh, fantastic, we not jump of imagination. I, I would never have thought of that. But yeah, I, I, um, I, I quite like to be uncluttered a little bit if I could. Well, I saw this kid doing a TikTok video where he's asking his father a joke and he goes, and the child said this, but the father's reaction was priceless. He laughed very hard. And the child just said, hey, dad, 
Why do girls rub their eyes when they wake up in the morning? The father goes, I don't know. Why do girls rub their eyes when they wake up in the morning? And the child says, because they can't scratch their balls. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, you, you, you didn't expect that kind of like, you know. Yeah. That, part, that sounds like an adult joke that a child is telling. Or had been told by his grandfather, because there's always that older relative yeah. that goes, hey, you want to hear a great joke that your mom's not going to like you knowing? The grandfather not only planting little seeds. Yeah. But yeah. Martin, I know that you've got to run because you've got, uh, before I let you go, uh, do you want to tell our listeners outside of the scope of the info that'll be on the episode on Anchor FM, uh, what you got going on that you want our listeners to focus to or come to? Ah, yes. Yeah. So at the minute, my main, the, my main thing that I'm doing is I'm doing online tutorials, uh, comedy writing, comedy performance, and I've also got act development workshops, which I'm doing with circus acts, burlesques, magicians, uh, actors, all sorts of people. So basically, anyone that has an interest in putting some element of comedy into their performance, I'm doing tutorials for that. And uh, I'm also doing as a little, a little freebie thing, I'm putting up juggling videos, juggling tutorials on my YouTube. Um, it's a YouTube channel called Funny Happy Stuff. And on Funny Happy Stuff, there's going to be, at the minute, there's everything from three ball juggling, progressing through to four ball juggling. And that goal is uh, probably by the end of the year, that will be a comprehensive juggling course right up to seven ball juggling. So from beginner to pro level, I'm hoping to make an encyclopedia, encyclopedic uh, full, fully comprehensive juggling course on Funny Happy Stuff, and it's free. It's on YouTube. Are you thinking of perhaps, perhaps, I'm just putting this out there, teaching people how to juggle knives? Well, so that's, yeah, so that, that would be part of it. The, the video that I have on this very computer at the moment is a club juggling video and the principles of jug clubbling, jug clubbling, jug clubbing? Jug, cu jug clubbling, yes. Club juggling. Juggling uh, clubs. Principles as juggling with, um, with knives. Nice. The, the one thing, the big thing that people have asked me for, yeah. the, the, the biggest interest I have was, so I put up some, last May, there's a thing that runs called Trick a Day May. So you just do a different trick every day, put it on Facebook. And I've done some, I can do some quite precise knife throwing tricks. I've and seen. A, lot, a lot of people got back to me about the knife throwing and, and asked, and only because here I'm in England and the weather's bad, I have a little knife throwing range in my garden, but it's open air and it's yeah. just too, it's just too, it's just too cold and wet. So as soon as the weather goes good, I'm going to do a proper knife throwing tutorial. Uh, oh. for and what, what my thing is that I do is I, I'll show it with throwing knives, but I also th show the techniques that you can use just normal, like a Bowie knife or a hunting knife uh, with that. So that's, that'll be coming up, but for here, that's going to be like a few months time. It's going to be after Easter probably before the weather's warm enough. So in a way, one advertising campaign, because you've gone with the Viking way, you could even stick with the Viking method of knife throwing, axe throwing, but you could also market it as prepare for the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, funny enough, I was, um, I was hatchet throwing yesterday. I was, I was in my garden. I was, all I was doing was I was um, chopping wood 
for the I've got a storage container for in in the when the weather's okay I light a little fire maybe sit and have a cup of tea in the evenings we have a little fire so I was yeah. chopping firewood and just while I was doing it I was just near where I've got the throwing range and it was just a hatchet and I thought oh I'm going to see what this throws like I have proper tomahawks yeah. and I was just, I just did like thirty minutes of hatchet throwing it was quite enjoyable wow. it actually worked it worked much better than I thought it was going to work it's, it is just a hatchet it's not a it's not weighted in any way, but um, yeah, that was quite good fun. So I had a half an hour of hatchet throwing yesterday. I I, I don't know because like I've I've always that is actually something I've always wanted to be able to do, is the art of being able to like precision throw a knife and get mm. the target. Because like I remember you had this one video I think it was on Instagram, where you had like a balloon, on a target board and you did it in slow motion where you threw the knife and the knife you know got the balloon or something was it so the one the one that went the the one that went the best on tiktok for me was i had a fidget spinner you know those fidget spinner things that were popular mm. and i i attached the fidget spinner to the backboard with with a nail and i attached a playing card to one side of the fidget spinner and then i stuck it it was the ace of hearts and then i stuck it through the ace of hearts on a spinning target on so, a fidget so, spinner on a fidget spinner that one went went pretty well i did another one where i stuck it through the hole in the fidget spinner which was about this big mm. but the problem with that was it destroyed the fidget spinner because when it went into the hole it broke the fidget spinner so that was the end i suppose i could buy more but that was the end of my knife throwing fidget spinner yeah, but that, that, that would be an interesting title for a one-off evening special show, The Death of My Fidget Spinner. Yeah, yeah, maybe so, maybe so. But yeah, knife throwing videos are definitely going to happen. Um, there's been such a, a lot of people. I, I actually know people who, so I recommended a beginner's throwing knife, and I've actually had people de DMing me after, just after Christmas on Facebook, sending me a direct message with a picture of them with their throwing knife ready to ready to learn. learn the the weather's good enough so yeah but if we get a break if, we, if the weather breaks and goes nice i might i might run out and try and do it sooner than than easter well surely the ways of the viking warrior doesn't get bothered by a little bit of rain yeah it just when it's um when you're trying to be precise and it's so cold even just the operating the cameras and stuff was of just course. a nightmare uh, one other thing, but I must mention before we before um, I go yeah. is if anybody's interested in seeing what my comedy looks like, one of the things I did was uh, so I have a YouTube channel which is just called Martin Moore and my surname is M O R for any listeners. So Martin Moore, if you look on my Martin Moore comedian YouTube channel, there's a thirty minute uh, there's a, a one hour comedy special filmed at the Edinburgh Fringe in the Stand Comedy Club and it's again completely free. It's up there. And it's from wow. a couple of years ago. So if you want to check out my comedy special, uh, you can do so for free on YouTube. Uh, leave me a comment if you like it. Or if you don't uh, like it, don't leave a comment. <laughs> well, the best things in life are free, Martin. And mm -hmm. definitely, I will have all that information in the episode's description on Anchor. Incidentally, I found out today that my podcast is available on nine different platforms. I'm on wow. Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Stitcher, Castbox, and of course Spotify. Wow, you are out there. 
I'm out there. No excuse. Got to keep going. Got to keep it consistent. Martin. Nice to talk a, to You've been a phenomenal guest, and I look forward to having you on again, because this will be like going on all year and every year yeah. until the day I die. <laughs> sounded morbid, but you know. You notice I did the whole podcast without swearing. Which is very surreal. I, I, I'm surprised. You know, my, not all my listeners are Disney. I'm probably going to have to give my Irish passport back for um, being culturally inappropriate by not swearing. But um, I thought I'd be pretty good. Martin, you've been a phenomenal guest. And thank you so much for giving me time to come on my show. Thank you, uh, man. Safe of Candles, the show with no name podcast with Martin Moore. All information will be in the description below on Anchor FM. Uh, Martin, thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum. See you next time. Good luck. Indeed. Listeners, peace be upon you. Namaste and all that jazz.